Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Do you love classic works but hope for a great teacher to guide you through them? Would it be helpful to see how great thinkers have approached the same subject? The Searcy Press is excited to announce a new book by C. Scott and David V. Hicks, The Tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch in The Statesman and The Lawgivers to this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar, and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams. The Hicks then turned their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique, comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. For a limited time, The Tyrant Julius Caesar is available at a discounted price. To claim your copy and the Hicks previous Plutarch titles, head to CerseInstitute.org backslash books. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name is Tim McIntosh. I am the host and we have a very special episode today. It's an interview between... Dr. Christopher Perrin and myself. I think Chris does most of the interviewing, but I do a little bit of the interviewing also. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris, and then I'll segue into the podcast. Dr. Perrin is, he's an author, a consultant, a speaker. He is kind of the renaissance man of all things classical education He co-founded and serves full-time as the CEO and publisher at Classical Academic Press. Classical Academic Press, we sometimes refer to it by shorthand, CAP, is a classical education curriculum, media, and consulting company. I did a course in how to teach Shakespeare for teachers, and it was done through CAP. They've got a, a branch called Classical U. It's kind of a continuing education for classical teachers. We talk a little bit about that on this podcast. 
we th- this is a far-ranging interview. It's one of the most fun conversations that I've had in a long time. We touch, of course, on Shakespeare. We touch on his education about theater and how theater is different from film, how it's similar to film. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. This is part one. We had such a good time that we ended up needing to break the podcast in half. So this is part one and part two will be dropping soon. Please enjoy this conversation between myself and Dr. Christopher Perrin. With me is a good friend and colleague, Tim McIntosh, who has been in the world of classical education for some time now. He was a professor at uh, Augustine College. He was teaching in humanities for quite a while, but he's always loved writing, and so he's always been a writer and a playwright and an actor, in particular, a lover of Shakespeare, and has taught Shakespeare a good bit, and I've seen him do that because he has recorded a course uh, here at uh, Classical Academic on our Classical U uh, teacher training platform, classicalu.com. He did a, he did a course on, on teaching Shakespeare in which uh, he worked with four or five students locally who he had never met before except for one. And he trained them and taught them, and they produced uh, an act of, of a Shakespeare play. It was remarkable to see him doing what he's been trained and is gifted to do. So, Tim, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. And since you're going to post as well, you might as well introduce the show too. What do you have to say? So I do a couple of podcasts. One of them, the kind of mothership show is called Close Reads in which I get together with a handful of friends and we basically do an on-air book club that we started. We started it eight years ago and we thought we'd have 45 listeners and it would peter out after two years. Now it's eight years in the listenership. Apparently the listenership continues to grow. There's a big need out there for kind of an online book club, but from close reads, the kind of mothership podcast, we started a Shakespeare podcast called the plays, the thing after that little reference from Hamlet. And we are going through all, all 37 of Shakespeare's plays act by act And we've been doing that long enough that we're actually, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're probably going to finish the plays, the thing probably within about a year. So um, those are the two things in addition to my, uh, my, (laughs) my real job, which is I write for a living. I write uh, speeches among other things. I write speeches for nonprofits. Um, But you and I are probably here to talk more about the classical side of my life. Yeah. Well, the two merge, don't they? Because yeah. uh, your study of writing, theater, and rhetoric, well, it's an employable skill. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely an employable it's, skill. It's, 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 a, it's a human matter. Yeah. Um, so would you just give a little bio? Tell, tell us a little bit more uh, uh, for, for the sake of my, my podcast right. listeners. How did you come to be doing what you're doing? It's a little bit roundabout. I'm going to try to tell it in a thrifty way. I finished a seminary degree. That was my master's degree. And I wrote a, I had to write a thesis at the conclusion of my master's degree. And I went to my advising professor and I asked him if I could write a play. I had fallen in love with um, a philosopher, an 18th century philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. I know you know him, Chris, but I don't know how, I don't know how popular he is in classical circles. Anyway, 
I didn't want to just write an overview of uh, Kierkegaard because I thought that his story would be more interestingly told if done through theater. The trouble was I had never written anything for theater in my life, but I got permission from my professor and I set about doing it and I proceeded to write the worst the worst play that's ever been written, maybe in the history of mankind. It was terrible. I didn't have any craft. And you can imagine a play about a wordy philosopher was a very, very wordy play. So I kind of struggled through. Um, I got my degree and some friends of mine over in Eugene, Oregon, heard about my play. They were affiliated with, Chris, you said Augustine College earlier. I think you met, it was Gutenberg College. So they inv- they invited me out to Gutenberg to do a reading of the play, and I it must have gone well because they kept inviting me back. I would do various lecture series, and sooner they they offered me a position. So I was at Gutenberg for nine years, and that was it, it's it's strange to say that was my first exposure to the classical world because it's not exactly true. I was familiar with bits and pieces of the classical world. And then at Gutenberg, I kind of got thrust into it, into the deep end, I suppose. And while I was there, I was figuring out that I didn't know how to write for theater. So I started going out for plays because I figured my my, my biggest obstacle was that I didn't know how to write for actors. I was used to writing essays and more academic forms of writing. And I didn't know how to write for actors. And so I tried to learn how to act on the fly. And that led me to Shakespeare. And as much as I had been, I mean, I'd been around Shakespeare in some way all my life. I'd seen, you know, back in the nineties, there were a series of really, really great Shakespeare movies that came out. Lawrence Fishburne's Othello. I went and saw that and I thought it was amazing. Mel Gibson did a Hamlet that I thought was wonderful. There was a much ado about nothing. So I saw these plays in the big on the big screen and I started to fall in love with Shakespeare. But the real trick was when I actually had to perform two Shakespeare scenes for the first time. And it absolutely changed my view of Shakespeare. I kind of, I liked him. I respected him before, but when I had to act him, it went to another level. Hmm. Hmm. So your comments are just taking me in so many directions at once, but, but let me go in this direction and tell you a classical joke. And yeah, see I want to hear it. I want to hear it. So in, in, in the circles of the renewal of classical education, it's popular to either like Shakespeare or pretend that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it that so many don't have the kind of positive experience with Shakespeare that you've described yourself having. I have a, I have a strong opinion about this. <laughs> I'm charging out of the gate to answer this question. I think it's because our, I think it's a teaching problem. I think that our teachers and I was as guilty as anybody of this treat Shakespeare as if he wrote long novels that we're supposed to sit down on the couch, on the easy chair, and just read page by page. I will tell you, I, I, you know, I'm classically trained. I'm very comfortable with hard texts. 
I can barely sit down and just read Shakespeare page by page. I find it so difficult. And so I'm a little bit on a one-man crusade to try to get teachers to equip their students to act Shakespeare, even if they don't need to be actors. The students don't need to be actors. The teachers don't need to be actors. But to just get their students on their feet beside their desk or in front of the classroom and to just act out a few plays. Because once someone stands up in front of other people and plays Benedict or plays Beatrice and plays the kind of witty repartee between the two of them, something changes in the student. You realize, oh, something's going on here. I'm, I'm embodying this part and it's fun to embody this part, you know? I have to think about tone of voice and my posture and my breathing and how loud I am or how quiet I am. So it really invigorates students to put themselves into the text to not just be over the text. This is, this is true of all poetry, isn't it? Poetry should be in tone. Well, not maybe not all poetry, yeah, yeah, especially but, modern poetry. But, I mean, so much... Shakespeare is verse, and yeah. and it's meant to be intoned, uh, or at least when something is read mm. with thought and read dramatically, um, it's it plays in our it plays through our vocal cords. We play this poem, this uh, piece of literature through the instrument of our own voice. Mm. Uh, my wife, Christine, as you know, is a poet, and she often says this. Um, th- po- poems need to be read. And, and our friend Josh Gibbs, who teaches all kinds of literature, says that um, even non-poetic literature needs to be performed by the teacher often in a high school class. Uh, in other words, it, it can be a problem, and I'd like you to address this. Yeah. If you get a group of 10th graders around the table and they're reading, say, King Lear— and you say, let's let's go around in a circle and every, have everyone read. Mm. That could go well, but it right. could also go very poorly because the students may not have been trained and prepared to actually read well. Mm. Mm. And so you know how this goes when uh, we've th- those of us have taught have had this experience. We say, okay, let's 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 read and and okay, let's let's begin with with you, John, mm-hmm. um, of <laughs> thou nature. Art my God, my, thou art thou art nature, my art my goddess, and I I bow to to do thy you know you're like no no no, mm-hmm. please don't do that to the mm-hmm, text. Mm-hmm. So how, how how do you address that challenge? I have a little trick. I have a couple of tricks, and I think the first obstacle to overcome, and thus the first trick, is for students not to be to get over the self conscious feelings of reading something that's very difficult in which every fourth word is somewhat foreign to them. They have to slow down and sound out mm-hmm. Gloucester, which isn't really Gloucester. <laughs> it's Gloucester, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so one of my tricks is to get the students up on their feet and to ask them first off to give the worst possible reading the worst possible performance that they can give of Shakespeare. 
And it immediately kind of liberates them. It's so fun to do the worst possible performance. And also, you can't be criticized. You can't be criticized for giving the worst possible performance. It's your job to give the worst possible performance. So I try to do that early on. And so students start having fun with it. And then after that, I have another little trick, which is do the fastest reading that they can do. Just get it out of your mouth as quickly as you can. And so again, it's another kind of leaping the obstacle of self-consciousness. Students now feel like, okay, I just got to blaze through this and I'm not going to worry if it's Gloucester or Gloucester. I'm just going to speed through it. And then the third trick, and I did all of these, Chris, in the class that I did for you guys. The third trick is the biggest performance that they can do. And so that is usually accompanied by exaggerated gestures, heavy breathing, you know, maybe running around a little bit. The, their job is just go big. And, and the funny thing is, when they are big, as big as they can be with their gestures and their voice and their volume, that's, they're actually doing Shakespeare the way that I want them to do it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I, I stumbled upon this in class one day and I asked my students to just, you know, act really big and they did. And I thought, louder, louder, yeah, right, right, right. And bigger gestures, straighten your arm when you make this declamation and when they did that, I thought, well, this is where I actually want them to end up. So I just need to find a way to keep them here. And, and we went from there and it went in really good directions. So Chris, you've been in the classroom, I dare say more than I have. Um, what is your student's response to Shakespeare or just to kind of like ad hoc performing in class? Well, I, I think there's something that needs to happen in the classroom, however you get there, whatever, use the word trick, you know, whatever, whatever you employ to help this happen, what needs to happen is for the students to be themselves possessed by the author and the text, such that it starts to read them, Mm. Mm. uh, such that they begin to have a kind of um, burgeoning friendship with the author. When they, when they begin to to realize that another mind is engaging them, speaking to them, and actually becoming a part of their mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you encounter something beautiful from Shakespeare, say, uh, whether it just comes to you as a surprise or it comes to you generally, when you begin to realize that he is articulating some, some deeply human truth that therefore is yours, and that you begin to understand yourself and your experience and others better. When that happens, um, students might not even know it's happening to them until afterwards, but they're, they're, they're really falling in love. Yeah. And so, you know, Shakespeare is perhaps, if not one of the greatest, the greatest uh, writer in English literature by, by uh, a long line of critical opinion. Mm-hmm. So if you don't love Shakespeare, it's not Shakespeare's fault. It means that there's a fault that lies elsewhere. And so you have the teacher has to look to himself or herself and say, what, what, why is this not happening? Why do I have to pretend <laughs> to 
to like Shakespeare. Right. And I think actually, in my experience, I had two teachers of Shakespeare, one in high school and then one at St. John's College. Or I, I took a, a preceptorial at their graduate institute in, in Shakespeare. And the two teachers could not be more different in this respect. My high school teacher did not seem to actually love Shakespeare. Really? She, she was fulfilling the, the requirement to teach yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but I just remember, like you described, plodding through reading. We did not dramatically read. We did not act. Um, there wasn't a lot of context provided. Uh, we didn't, I didn't understand Shakespeare in, you know, in his own historical context very well. Uh, and I think we also went pretty fast. I think we did a, you know, a comedy and a tragedy in a matter of a few weeks, and we were done. And so we covered Shakespeare. I never really got Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. I didn't fall in love with Shakespeare. And then uh, Elliot Zuckerman, the late Elliot Zuckerman, was my tutor at St. John's. And he lived Shakespeare. Really? Shakespeare lived in him. Uh, he would recite. He would joke. He would laugh. Um, get this, Tim. <clears throat> we read Othello, and then he had us study the musical score of the opera by Verdi, Othello. Really? And we did a compare and contrast. And Zuckerman was also a concert-level pianist. Oh, my goodness. So he had us around a table, 14 of us, with a grand piano at the head of the table where he sat. And he would play to us uh, sections, oratorios, from from Verdi's Othello. Mm. And we would have uh, the Shakespeare's text open and the musical score Oh, he required us to read the musical score, regardless of whether or not we could read music, and then to really? listen to it while we watch it. And then he would do things like this: he would play an, uh, you know, an oratorio from Desdemona, say, and he would say, "Here's how Shakespeare wrote it. Here's how Verdi sings it." Mm. And and then he would say, "He wrote this in a minor key," and he would play it. Do you hear that? And we say, "He said, does that?" Does that sound appropriate to you, given the text? And then he would say, well, here's what it would sound like in a major key. And he would transpose it to a major key, and he'd play the same, Unbelievable. The same few measures in a major key. he say, how does that sound to you? Which do you prefer? Which seems more appropriate? And the question we pursued for a while was, how does music affect the way a text means mm. and, and affects you? What a fascinating way to learn. And because there's such a overlap, isn't there, between major key, minor key, between the emotional tone of a piece of, a piece of text. That's, that's really fascinating. And of course, he, he, I remember uh, he was recalling one of those uh, verses, and I can't forget which play it is, where Shakespeare talks about taking it down a peg, uh, which is to take it to a minor key. It's mm. so... Musicians understood this in Shakespeare's time, that the, the minor key is appropriate for communicating loss, sadness, and grief. You mm. Take it down. So uh, that was – at any rate, I share that, that anecdote because I got caught up in loving Shakespeare for the first time in my mid-20s. Uh, really? And it was because someone modeled it for me. And, I, and so the, the first teacher that you had was not particularly in love with Shakespeare, but it sounds like you still enjoyed, did you enjoy Shakespeare under her teaching? 
You know, I it was my senior in high school, and I don't recall not liking Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I just recall moving through Shakespeare. Yeah. And then later in, in life, when people would ask me about Shakespeare, I'd say, ah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with Shakespeare. Right. I did not love him. I don't think I disliked him, but I did not love him, and I did not understand him well enough to love him. And as others often say, like Josh Gibbs, uh, Shakespeare is hard to love, like, mm. a, like a complex wine, uh, as is Dante, but so, so much more pleasurable and so much uh, a deeper love when you when you learn how to love him. So, how do you respond to that? It, it, it's a, if Shakespeare is hard to love, uh, why not bring students to an easier text that's easier to love? Because yeah, the depths that you can go to in Shakespeare are worth the kind of white capped waves on top of the depths. You know, it, it's it. it what is below here? I'll tell a little story. When I was living in Eugene, my friend Sam um, said, Hey, do you want to swim the McKenzie River with me? I've got fins and I've got, you know, snorkel material. And the bottom of the McKenzie River is really fascinating. And I said, Okay, sure. So it was a really hot day and we went to the McKenzie River. And then the McKenzie River is a massive river, it's not Mississippi wide and deep. But it is a big, scary river, but it's relatively placid when it flows through the city of Eugene. So we put on our flippers and we put on our mask and, and whatever, snorkel. And we got in and the water was pushing so hard and it was so comparatively cold that it was the first five minutes were terrible. I mean, they were terrible. I thought I was going to go into shock and... I'm swimming against the current just so I just don't get swept downstream immediately. And I just thought, what am I doing? Then my body habituated to it. And Sam and I started going below the surface. And the things that we saw at the bottom of the McKenzie River were stunning. We were stunning. We saw couches and cars and like barbecue. I mean, it was, it was a little bit embarrassing that all the things that people had thrown into the river, but it still, it made the swim so worth it because it was just this kind of panoply of a past life. And, and maybe Shakespeare is similar. You know, the first five minutes are shocking. They're, yeah, they're so shocking. There's Even a junk. <laughs> there's a junkyard down there. <laughs> That's where the analogy fails, doesn't it? Because it's not a it's not a junkyard at the bottom, but it is like it's fascinating and it's beautiful in, in this strange way. So I wonder if that's I that's been my kind of um how I think about classical education broadly from the outside, when you first dip your toe in and Homer sounds as foreign as if someone wrote it from another planet, Shakespeare likewise. But if you make the effort and kind of like build up your muscle and get over the shock of the first introduction, then what you can see on the bottom, in addition to sunken couches, et cetera, et cetera, like these beautiful, huge green mossy boulders and fish of all sorts and turtles, it's worth it's worth the effort. So now I have to tell you a story that matches yeah. it. It's a, it's a great yeah. analogy, but when I, I lived, my dad worked for the NCIS and we, we lived on Guam 
because mm. there's a, a naval station there for five years. So my teen years up through 17, I was in Guam. And in Guam, there's these places where these there are these sea caves that are filled up with seawater when the tide comes in. And they just fill up these massive caves that are as deep as a house, as big as a house. Oh, wow. And once there were about four or five of us, and we were sitting on the rocks, and we were diving into this deep pool of water with, that had been filled up with seawater. The tide had come in. And we would go deep, uh, swimming into this deep bowl that might be 30 feet deep and 50 mm. feet across or more. And one, our friend Ray dove in. The, we were all sitting on the rocks, and he dove in. He was, we went down to the bottom and was looking around. But then after about a minute, he did not come up. Uh-oh. And then about another minute went by, and we we're thinking all of us started to look to each other, and we started to say, I don't, I, I don't think I could hold my breath that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just about the time we were going to dive in and look for his body, uh. his, his head popped up out of, the, uh, out of the water, and he said, follow me. Oh, and no. Okay, I know. I think I know what's going to happen. I think. How long do you think he was gone when you guys started thinking, maybe we need to go get his body? I think it was two or three minutes. Well, okay, yeah. Scary. Okay. So, uh, enough that we thought he probably died. So, But then his head popped up and he says, follow me. And, of course, we all dive in after him and we start swimming deep down under the water. And we're all following Ray in a line. And we're swimming... And at a certain point, we start swimming underneath rock such that, you know, we know we can't come up for air. And, mm. and we're following him. And I remember getting to the point where I realized that if I didn't, if there weren't, if there wasn't going to be air above me, I didn't have enough breath to swim backwards to where I could pop up out of the water right. and breathe again. So we kept stroking and stroking. And then we all did come into a smaller a smaller, smaller cave, and we all popped up out of the water, and we were in this small room, you know, probably about the size of a very small bedroom, and there was sand and rock there, and we all, we all were just amazed that we had found this passage underneath the rock to a new cave, and we looked around and we said something like this: "I think we're the first humans." Oh my ever goodness! Be here until, oh my goodness! Until one of us reached behind a rock and pulled up a Coke can. You're kidding me. <laughs> Someone had been there before with a Coke can. Uh, but nonetheless, it illustrates uh, this, the commitment you have to make right. to, to go. But we were able to follow someone who, who we trusted could get us mm. there. So there's this, the need for leadership, the need for mm -hmm. an example, a model to follow, even when you're not sure where you're going, trusting that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get to someplace. Yeah, good. yeah. So immediately with Elliot Zuckerman, I had that sense. Like, I, I was ready to follow him. He was modeling a kind of joy yes. Yes. that was uh, attractive. You know, I, yes. I wanted to experience what I saw in him. I, I had a teacher my freshman year at college. Ruth Conser, she was probably early 70s. She could not possibly have cared less about the way that she dressed, about who did her hair. She couldn't possibly care less. And by all rights, 
she should have been like the least appealing teacher, you know, to a 19 year old guy who was at that time, I was obsessed with basketball. It was the only thing that I thought about. I thought about basketball all the time. And I sat in the back of her fine arts class, my freshman year with all the basketball players. And we laughed and joked about Ruth concert and the plaid onesie jumpsuits that she would wear to class because again she could not have possibly cared less what we thought of her and i was sitting with all my friends but slowly and surely this woman's like appeal to me her powerful appeal about painting through the centuries what it was capable of conveying does started working on me and by the time i got to my sophomore year i thought dr concer was just the best thing that had ever like graced a human classroom. And by the time I was a senior, I felt that way even more strongly. And and it was, for me, it was her level of, I wish I had a better word, how serious she was about the subject. For her, it was, this is life and death stuff. And if you want to sit at the back of my classroom and laugh and joke, you know, and be obscene, that's your, you go ahead and waste your time. I'm not going to do that. And I, that got to me because I started at that time, sort of like kind of taking my life seriously. I started realizing I wasn't going to be an NBA basketball player. And I started thinking there's more to life than basketball. And life is this grand, you know, this huge oyster and maybe there's a pearl inside, you know? So Dr. Concer was the one who kind of introduced me to that notion. And it's, it's hard to convey, isn't it? Like what a teacher can do just by their presence. I mean, so much of it, of course, is the material. Like this, this professor that you had, his he could play the piano and he could probably speak and recite Shakespeare. But my hunch is that a lot of it's just his presence, like the way that he was. Am I right about that, Chris? Yeah. And some of those things are hard to describe. Yeah, you know, it, it can be. It's his posture, the way he carried himself, his his smile, his his uh, sense of humor, his cleverness, his wittiness, uh, and and also I would describe it as an appropriate friendship. Uh, he hmm. he invited all fourteen of us into his home. Uh, for our last seminar on Macbeth. And mm. he had us all, he said, bring something sweet or savory, sweet meats, if you like, mm. and so forth. And and so we we all brought something and we sat around his living room and had the last seminar there. Uh, so he was inviting, he both personally uh, and and with the subject matter, with, with Shakespeare, he was inviting us in. Um, I did my paper, I recall, on King Lear, and he wrote, um, he stapled to my 11-page paper two legal pages full of notes. No way. Uh, in, in praise and blame yeah. of my paper. Uh, and at the very bottom, do you know what there was? What? Nothing. There was no grade. No grade. Because uh, St. John's, there aren't grades. So it was just to get his, to have him also served me in that way to take that amount of time with my thought and write down so, you know all of his commentary thoughts and suggestions was meaningful to me such that I you know still remember it yeah to this day 
he was he was devoted to his craft and that meant that he was devoted to you yeah so if i could then you know sometimes people ask the question of authors like shakespeare what is shakespeare going to do for me you know they might ask that of any any kind yeah. of great literature what, what's this going to do for me and then you as somebody who loved basketball, maybe at first that's what you were asking about your mm -hmm. fine, act, fine, art, fine arts class and, and, your, and your other fellow athletes. What's this going to do for me? What do you think the, the right question is that people should be asking of Shakespeare? People do ask that question. How do, you right. respond to, how do you respond to that when you hear that kind of concern or question? The first thing I would say is... Um, you won't you won't get what Shakespeare has for you if you think you're over him. So to hearken back to what you said earlier in the podcast, um, to think this is to think that I am over the text, over Shakespeare's plays, whether it be King Lear or Othello or Macbeth, and to look down and to pry it apart for his you know, Renaissance motives or his European prejudices, et cetera, et cetera. If that's the approach, you won't get anything out of Shakespeare. And, and I, I mentioned that not because you have a lot of listeners that I think would think in that way, but I think that's one of the primary ways in which Shakespeare is taught today. And I think most texts are taught today, um, maybe on the college level or even maybe in high school there's a kind of sense in which the reader's job is to pry apart text and to kind of unearth ancient or, you know, enlightenment prejudices, et cetera, et cetera. And I was exposed to enough of that, that I stopped wanting to read text. So I think that the, the classical mode asks us to sit below the, those texts that have been deemed worthy of great praise that are considered classics. So I first think that like, you're not going to get anything out of them if you put yourself over the text, but if you put yourself under the text, what does Shakespeare have to say? I think one of the chief things that he has to say is again, you mentioned it earlier. These, he is, he is great in two ways and he is not just great, but he is, for all time in two ways, his use of language, the incredible flowering, beautiful, like language run rampant. He's no one compares to him that I've ever read. No one. He's stunning in his use of language. And the second way is I think he is the master psychologist. I mean, you, you, you can't help but read when you read Coriolanus that if I were in those same circumstances, if I were some master Roman general who had just defeated the court, you know, at Coriolai, the Volscans, and Rome was praising me, I might, I might fall prey to hubris. I might just fall prey to hubris. And likewise with Hamlet, if I were trapped in a kingdom that used to be my father's, but now is my uncle's, and I know that my uncle did wrong, that he killed my father, and now everywhere I am being spied upon, I might 
really struggle with my own sanity. You know, I might really start to break down and break apart a little bit if I were in those circumstances. And if I were Kent serving Lear unjustly accused, but I was committed to goodness and I was, and I had spent my life in virtue, I might have the capacity to return to my king who had just done me wrong and remain in his service, even though he has done me wrong. You know, and I, I think that's what Shakespeare does as well as anybody that I've ever encountered. He's human. He's so deeply, deeply human. And I think he puts on display both the best of us and the worst of us. And oftentimes he puts the best of us and the worst of us in open opposition with each other through characters. So you're pointing out that not only is he you know, a psychologist of mm. deep insights into to humanity, but he, he is a moral philosopher. Yeah. Right? He's, he's, he is juxtaposing in, say, Lear, uh, virtue and vice for mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, with, the, with, with characters who, even like the villain Edmund, at the end, was, seems to repent. He seems to be, uh, yeah. you know, uh, he seems to be open to, a, to change. And so he, his, his characters uh, sometimes are, well, they're complex, mm-hmm. uh, often complex. And, and you, you get caught up in a play like Lear, and, you, and you, you will find yourself thinking about what you would do and should do and ought to do. You know, in other words, it's instructive on the moral plane. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I wonder if you would just, if we take King Lear just as an example. Yeah. A favorite of mine. Uh, ha, what, what do you think would, ha, and maybe in your experience, what has happened, or what would you think would happen with a group of high school students who did yeah. a deep dive into a play like King Lear? What happens to them on the moral plane? What happens to them on the literary plane? What are the things you've seen uh, happen in students who start to read with with interest and attention a play like King Lear? Yeah. I think they um, experience emotions that are basically 10 years in advance of where they are. They get to kind of experience a, a sample kit of those emotions and drives because most of the characters in Lear are, they're older, the exception being perhaps Cordelia. She's the youngest of the three sisters. So I could imagine her perhaps being a teenager. And even Cordelia, who is the, of the three, of Lear's three daughters, he's dividing the kingdom between his three daughters. The two older daughters basically tell him, they love him more than life itself. And they can, you know, they can, life is not worth living without him. And they don't mean a lick of it. And Cordelia, who responds by saying, I love you according to what I owe you. And because I do love you, but I'm not going to tell you what my sisters told you because that's not true. And nobody loves anybody else in the way that they say that they love you. And, and Lear flies into an absolute rage, banishes her from the kingdom and the whole rest of the play is him trying to return to Cordelia. So if, if students play these roles, even Cordelia, who's probably closer to their age, they're experiencing the 
what they're experiencing the kind of um, real time vices and virtues in a condensed and concentrated fashion. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, Chris, since we're telling so many stories. This is a little bit embarrassing, but it's worth telling. I was cast as Macbeth, my first full-length role when I was living in Eugene. While I was memorizing lines from Macbeth, and there were a lot of them, I was helping a student who had been struggling with his senior thesis. I'll use his name because he and I joke around about this all the time. His name is Brian. He struggled, he was struggling with his thesis. He kind of just, you know, couldn't straighten out exactly where he would go. And so I said, listen, it's summertime. I'm off this summer, but maybe we can make a little deal. I'll help you with your thesis if you help me run Macbeth lines. So he would show up two times a week at my house and the struggles that he was having with his thesis weren't going away. Meanwhile, I was getting to the part in my Macbeth memorization where Macbeth was becoming just a monster, a monster, right? And so at one point I was getting really frustrated because he would, he was asking for my advice and I would give him my advice and he wouldn't take it. And this one day after running Macbeth lines about Macbeth turning into this murderous monster, I snapped and I said, I yelled at my precious student. I yelled at him. If you're not going to take my advice, then what are we doing here? I think I might've even cussed at him. And he, I remember he stopped and his eyes were as wide as saucers. And he said, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then I, when I calmed down, I thought, Oh, Brian, I'm so sorry. I, I was Macbeth. I was like channeling. I mean, I really, I was, I was kind of becoming the character in a way that I think is very unhealthy for actors. There always needs to be a kind of like delineation, but it was my first full length Shakespeare role. I didn't know how to make that delineation between Tim, the normal person and the person who is playing Macbeth. So I think that there's, you begin, especially as a young person for better and for ill to take on the kind of internal tenor of these characters and feel what it feels like to suffer, to be good, to be bad. You get to feel all these things in your character. One last story, Chris, and then I'll, I've got questions for you. I was with a school in Colorado this week they, we have done four years in a row now, accepting COVID, a Shakespeare showcase in which students perform a, a handful of different scenes from different Shakespeare plays. We performed, they performed the last scene in The Winter's Tale, which is a tremendously underrated play. And it concludes with a reunion between a wife, Hermione, the original Hermione, and husband, Leontes. Leontes has done her horribly, horribly wrong, put her on trial falsely. And now 16 years later, he's been living in shame because he realizes what he's done. And a miracle happens at the end of the play. Hermione, who has died earlier in the play, now 16 years later, comes back in a statue garden and actually comes to life. And there's a reunion. Now, these 
young people that were playing this role, these roles of Hermione and Leontes, they were, I think, 17 and 18. They played this role with so much tenderness and so much capacity that I, every time they performed it, I started crying because it was so moving. And they didn't know, they had not experienced this sort of tragedy that that was being described in this play. So, so few of us had, and these are such advanced, um, these are such advanced sadnesses that they were conveying. Mm. And they did such a beautiful, beautiful job. And I, I like to think, and I really want to hear what you have to say about this. Mm. I like to think that when these things strike them in their life, because they are, they're human beings, these young people are human beings and they're going to suffer, that they, in a way, their muscles have kind of been exercised through the performance of this scene. And maybe they might have greater capacity to understand and to endure when great suffering hits them. Do you, do you think that that can happen through the experience of great texts? I, I do. Um, Your comments are reminding me of how a great text like, like Shakespeare and particularly not just reading, but, reading out loud, hmm. dramatically reading or acting uh, can can be transformative morally and let's just say prudentially. Hmm. Um, prudence as one of the cardinal virtues is often, um, often illustrated by, uh, personified as a woman looking into a mirror. And there's a, a beautiful painting by Raphael in the uh, Raphael room at the Vatican, where that very famous painting Jerusalem and Athens is, but ab- ab- above one of the doorways in a lunette is um, a-, a personification of three of the cardinal virtues. There's courage on the left, prudence in the center, and then uh, temperance on the right, mm. uh, leaving justice, which uh, Raphael put on the ceiling, in the center of the ceiling. But the the image of prudence is is remarkable because it it's the face of a beautiful young woman, maybe 22 or so, maybe 17 or mm. 18, looking into a mirror. And the expression on her face is one of sobriety mm. and tenderness combined. Uh, because she is, prudence comes from studying the past and studying literature. You know, we used to understand that the the reason we would study history and literature and poetry was, well, to grow in virtue and wisdom. Mm. And, and you pointed it out so well in your in your, in the anecdotes you were sharing. Young students become wise beyond their years yeah. because of the experience of a great text and great texts. But Raphael, like many others who personify prudence, doesn't just depict a young woman. A young person looking into a mirror, growing wiser. On the back of her head, there is another face painted, and it's the face of an old man. Really? Yeah. She's, she, though young, is acquiring the wisdom of age by reading history and literature. And she, 
she's looking backwards uh, even while she looks forward. So by studying the past, and that can include history and literature, um, we are prudently prepared for the present and for the future. And we know ourselves. And as she looks in the mirror, you know, and in that mirror is Macbeth. In that mm. mirror is mm-hmm. The Winter's mm-hmm. Tale. In that mirror is Dante. Lady Macbeth, that, yeah. Yes. Uh, she is understanding human nature, mm. including her own. And hence the expression on her face of tenderness and sobriety. Mm. Um, so it's incredibly important uh, for for us to recover this idea that the reason we study history and literature is to acquire humanity, to grow mm-hmm. wise and mm-hmm. prudent and virtuous. And it's it's why we call why we still have this this phrase the humanities. We study the humanities. It used to be that mathematics was also a part of the humanities because if you're human, you also quantify, measure, ponder, mm. weigh, etc. But the study of the great, the greatest that's been, you know, thought or said, helps us to grow wise faster. Yeah. So you used the word. Um, you said something about it. Uh, the 17, 18 year old kind of exercising muscles that maybe yeah. they didn't know they had, um, experiencing, say, the, the tenderness of reunion, of mm-hmm. loss, loss recovered and so on, before they've actually experienced exactly. it themselves. But they're going to. Yeah. And then when that does happen to them, they have, they're prepared. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this question. Yes, studying a winter's tale can, can do this in a proper context with a great teacher, et cetera. But why not just, can't they learn this through video games? <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that, Chris. <laughs> or a good um, movie. Or a good movie. I don't even know how to <laughs> I want you to answer this question because I honestly just, maybe I'm too dismissive, but I suspect I'm not. But that just does not. There is so, I'm not a video game person. I never have been. One of the reasons why is that I walk away from a video and I don't, and I'm not preoccupied by it. And one of the things that I love about when I walked away from basketball or when I walked away from performing Shakespeare, I thought about it afterwards. It kind of resonated in me and it echoed in me. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm so dismissive of video games. Maybe, I mean, I, this is a this is an absolute novice speaking about video games. So maybe I should not be so dismissive. Maybe there is something kind of um, virtue building within them, but they strike me as they kind of bounce off. The impact kind of bounces off the heart in a way. It. it doesn't seem to me to have the kind of capacity, but Chris, I'm speaking out of my depth here. Maybe you're a gamer and you know more about, (laughs) maybe you know more about um, the possible positive impacts of video gaming. Well, I mean, I think I, to to use the mirror analogy, if, if Shakespeare is a, a good, clean mirror of mm. uh, reflecting humanity back to us. Uh, 
the typical video game is like uh, a circus mirror. Mm. You know, it's a it's a, or, a, or being in a room full of mirrors. Uh, it warps. It like warps our, into, our self perception or perception of others. Yeah, I think it is warping and distorting, and you know, it bounces around so fast and is not true to reality. You know, you get to shoot people mm. uh, left and right in some of these uh, you know war games, and you get shot, but you have many lives. Right. Uh, you don't you don't really get hurt when you're shot. Uh, so there's these these critical distortions uh, that are built into the games that I think distort our perceptions of reality. So prudence is a, is a deep uh, and an increasing understanding of the real, of mm. what's actually given in the cosmos. And we live in a moment where people are, are toying with the idea that they can actually alter reality. That yeah. reality is essentially like a lump of clay that you get to change. Yeah. Uh, when it's not, it has hard edges. And learning what those are is a way of learning to be in the world better. And it seems to me a great text does that. But, okay, the video games are, are a bit of a straw man. Uh, right, right. It's easy foil to, you know, knock down. But what about, what about a good movie? What about those? Because there are people who are saying, you know, film is now the new novel. Mm. Uh, what what pe- reading is decreasing. People are increasingly consuming media and film and 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 television episodes and so forth. Right. And I think there's a great variety, but there's obviously some inferior and superior in in that realm. Right. But what do you think about film? How would you compare good film to great text? I'm a, I'm a bit of a Marshall McLuhan fan in this regard, um, and. Just if you've not heard about, I know that Chris, you've heard about Marshall McLuhan, but in case your listeners haven't, he had a kind of famous buzz phrase that the medium is the message. And I, because we are so inundated with media, I feel like I've, to be a responsible person, I've had to kind of like take a hard look at what different media do. What do video games do to us? What does Twitter do to us? What do movies do to us? And McLuhan's idea is that different media require different levels of engagement. So um, he has, he has this wonderful saying, one does not read the newspaper so much as one slips into it like a warm bath. That's the way that we engage with a newspaper. Of course, we're reading it to be informed, but really it's a luxurious and enjoyable kind of mode of taking in information. So if you apply that, if you kind of ask, what does a play do to us? What does a book do to us? And what does a movie do to us? And let's just imagine they're all like excellent in their craft. Let's just imagine for the sake of it, we're not going to pose a poorly done movie compared to the Aeneid or something like that. Let's say it's just all excellence. I think that a book requires the most of us when we're reading the Aeneid, we have to create this entire life world just in our minds and in our chests. We have to create an entire life world. And that entire life world is 2000 years old. Um, It's full of geography that we've probably never visited. 
It's full of people we've never met and we know very little about, about their motivations, about what their family life is like, about what their political situation is like, what their spiritual life is like. But when we read it, we do the hard work of piecing together an imaginative framework for what the Aeneid is about. And it is very, very demanding. And if I recall um, McLuhan's nomenclature, he would call that hot media. He would call a book hot media, which sounds like it, it sounds like the movie should be hot media because the movie is so active, right? But no, what he means, I gosh, I hope I'm getting this right. If you've got McLuhan experts on your, you know, listen to your podcast, they're pulling their hair out now. Um, the book requires maximum engagement. A movie, by contrast, even the very best movies that require a lot of their viewers, they don't require as much because they create so much for the viewer to engage in. So we're just a little bit more passive. Now, I think theater is kind of in between Hmm. because even the best theater, the most spectacular theater still requires a great amount of imaginative um, involvement from the audience. So, So an example from Shakespeare would be all the time characters make asides on the theater. Uh, um, Cordelia, when her father is about to throw her out of his kingdom, Cordelia makes an aside. And the aside is obviously within hearing distance of the king, right? But it's about the king. And so the audience has to make this little move in their minds. Oh, I am meant to believe that no one else but her can hear this, even though everybody else can hear it. Even I in the, in the state, you know, like 10 rows back can hear what Cordelia is saying. So it, it involves a sort of imaginative bridge building to actual reality or from actual reality. And so I have to be more engaged. And I think a movie, because movies are so sensorily, almost they can be overpowering. They don't require as much from me. It it doesn't say they don't require anything, but they they require much less, especially as compared to the reading of something like The End the Ed. Oh boy, that's, yeah. what What would you say about that? Why would you counsel? I mean, I know that you, there are movies that you love how would you compare that experience or, or it's kind of shaping effects upon us as compared to theater or a book? Well, I love, uh, you know, McLuhan's comments about the different kind of media and the way we experience media. Um, and I think in every genre, there's, there's a, a continuum of from the good to the bad. So I think you can have some, very good, captivating films. But the medium of film doesn't require nearly as much imagination. Mm. Now, sometimes a good film will get you thinking about things. I'm thinking of like Terrence Malick's Tree of right, Life. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, like the way it concludes and you're wondering, what's happening here? And you're, right. But that's rare. Uh, everything for you to imagine is, you know, d- is portrayed for you on the screen. And there isn't audience participation. Mm. So the sympathy that can occur in literature where you 
you you do create the world, right? If you read the uh, Lord of the Rings, you know you find yourself there in Middle Earth mm. or Lewis's Narnia tales. You're you're there, and children so are so good at making images, imagination mm. that they dwell in and live in. Our mind is more powerful than the filmmaker in creating worlds. Think about how we dream. You know, I, I woke up from a dream a couple of mornings ago, and I just thought, like, I was in another place. How, mm-hmm. how did my mind do that? Well, we have um, an image maker, an imagination, and when it's cultivated uh, for for things that are true, good, and beautiful, it creates worlds for us that bless us. Yeah, film is is an amazing medium, but it is a, a director creating a world for you. And you, it's limited because yeah. your your own image maker does more than the filmmaker as an image maker. But a good film like The Tree of Life by Malick is is trying to help maybe work with our imaginations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you mention plays being in that in between place, mm. I think that's that's exactly right because. People often say, you need to perform Shakespeare. Shakespeare was meant to be performed. You need an audience. Mm. Well, why? Why? So I want to kind of throw that back to you because there are times when the audience becomes a part of the play. In other right. words, there's, a, there's a, a synergy there that occurs. The actors need the audience. The audience needs the actors for right. the event of a play to, to uh, transact and be really good. Oh, Chris, <laughs> it's, it's such a, I don't know that I have the words for it. I know exactly what you were saying. Um, I remember I would be, actors have kind of two different views on how to think of the audience before the play begins. And I was one of the actors who would peek from out back and I would look at, you know, the audience because I, I just kind of wanted to kind of like have a little figure in my mind of what they might be about to experience there. I, again, I don't have the language for this. I just know what happens. I know that when you have living, breathing bodies on a stage and they are in the same room as living, breathing bodies, that there is some sort of connection of like to like that doesn't happen in cinema. Of course, you know, we know that the movie camera gives to us an exact verisimilitude of human actors, but they're not real human beings. You know, they're a projection of human beings. So I've just seen it over and over. I, I think that the emotional capacity of theater is even deeper than the emotional capacity of movies. And I'll tell you another story. I was the first play that I was ever in when I was trying to learn how to act was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful play called uh, The Rabbit Hole. It won the Pulitzer, I think, in 2022 for best play. And it was a story about a couple who had lost their son before the play begins. They had lost their son. He was, I think, 10 years old and he had been hit by a car. And it was the story of this couple trying to remain together in their marriage. I played the husband. It's a it's a wonderful play, and at the end of the play, um, I go backstage. the The play's over, and one of my castmates comes back, and you know I'm changing into my civvies, and 
one of my castmates comes back and she says, Hey, there's somebody waiting to see you. And I thought, is like a friend of mine, somebody that knows me? No, he doesn't know. He, I don't think, you know, so I went out and there was this man, it makes me emotional to think about it. Um, there was this man, he was probably 45 years old. And he, I, I, my suspicion is that he was not a theater guy. You know, he, he, somebody dragged him along to this play. And I walk up and I said, Hey, I, you wanted to meet me. And all he did was, and he, I could tell he was on the verge of crying. He reached out his right hand and he shook my hand and then he turned around and he went out. And I don't know what was happening for him in the play. My little imaginative theory is that he had lost a child. You know, that's, that's my best guess about what happened, but there something deep had happened to him in the watching the play so deep that like kind of putting words on it would have been to defile it in a way is I think kind of what was happening. And I, that's the reason why, yeah, movies might be the contemporary novel. They're certainly the most, um, there's such a prevalent means of telling stories now, but for me, nothing compares to theater. Nothing compares to theater. I love reading books, but going to theater when you get a good play, it is, it will hang on me for weeks and weeks, weeks and weeks. Cause it's just what a powerful medium. And we've all been to plays. There's so many times that I've gone to plays and I thought 10 minutes in, this is a disaster. Get me out of here. You know, but you can't really go anywhere. You can't like disturb the actors in the middle of the play. You just got to endure it. So it's kind of ripe with maximum possibility uh, and maximum failure also well that's an interesting point you just made that i hadn't considered when you're watching a film you can just turn it uh, off you can turn it off because most of the film now we consume is in our homes yeah now in a theater you can walk out of a, th- a movie theater that's a little easier to do but it's 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 insulting to walk out of a live play right 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 so but that is it's a signal that there's there's a a communion of sorts occurring between yeah. the people on the stage and those who are not. We're together in this. There's a kind of sympathy. We're doing this together. It would be there's a there's a difference between a rehearsal and the live play when there's a live audience. The mm-hmm. audience is a part of the whole process. Yeah. And such that, you know, TV imitates it by Inserting laugh tracks, mm-hmm. like this is supposed to be funny because I hear uh, people a recorded laugh track. You're prompting me to laugh at the appropriate yeah, okay. time. Is this, this funny? Well, in a in a play, no. If you laugh, it's because it really is funny, mm-hmm. not because some producer thinks you're supposed to. Yeah, laugh. So, yeah, there's something um, there's something communal ab- about a play that has, I think, the increased power to transform. And so, in the classroom, you can do some of that. It's by by doing what you suggested earlier in the podcast, having students uh, do some acting in class, dramatic reading, where you're essentially trying to take advantage of that kind of uh, communal engagement that right. reading a text, right. and acting a text provides. I, I I wonder if you chose the word communion the first time you talked about kind of what happens between audience and actors you use the word communion 
which has in the Protestant tradition kind of overtones, not even overtones. That's what we call the Eucharist. It's the participation. And I think that there's a real analogy there. I mean, I want to say this, like acknowledging that maybe the most disputed of all the Christian doctrines within the church has been what exactly is happening at Eucharist, right? So I'm not, I'm not talking about like kind of what the metaphysics are behind Eucharist or the communion table, but the conjoining of participants with something happening, um, for lack of a better word, on stage or on the altar, that there is a, there is a coming together of those things. I think that's the exact right word to describe what happens in theater. What's happening on the stage is not separate from what is happening in the audience. There is, there is a communion. I wish I could think of a better word. There's something participatory happening. I I think you're right. Um, Let's just play with that a little bit. Yeah. Um, The doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He's really present, in, mm, at least mm. in, an, in a way unlike his other presences, uh, because he's always present. There's a kind of hot spot uh, of yeah. intense presence in the, in the Eucharist. And so, when you read Shakespeare and act Shakespeare, uh, there is a real presence of a human experience that a 17 or 18 year old say of loss or longing or reunion has not experienced mm. in his or her own life but is really present through the study of Shakespeare yeah such that he comes to know loss and reunion I also want to say transubstantially <laughs> you know it's something <laughs> why not why not yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, in other yeah. words, something moves across time and becomes a substance in his own life mm-hmm. by means of another, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and by ne- by means of the play, by means of the actors, by means of the text, by means of his his or her classmates in the classroom. Like you described yourself watching those two young actors. Uh, and yeah. being moved to tears yourself, you became present in, in mm-hmm. that loss and reunion. Mm-hmm. You, in multi, maybe in multiple ways, you, maybe you were also present in watching their own transformation might have moved you as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And you, so, you know, I think what I'd like to do, if this is okay with you, Tim, is in this podcast yeah. to begin another. Okay. <laughs> because I think, what we've done in this podcast to me has been very edifying in kind of surveying the way Shakespeare and great texts uh, bless and transform and change and telling some stories from our own past and yeah. experiences teaching. But where I'd like to go in the next podcast is to discuss with you the specific ways that uh, virtue is cultivated through Shakespeare with an eye towards the way that sympathy mm. and love and fellowship are developed in a classroom studying great texts like Shakespeare. Would that be okay with you? I would love that. I would uh, love so that. Then why don't we just notice, um, note for our audience, where, where can people find you, Tim, apart from 
uh, you know, the Christopher Perrin show, uh, would you right. mention the <laughs> podcast that you're doing and any other places you'd like to direct our, our listeners to? The easiest place to find me is uh, Close Reads. That's our podcast um, through Goldberry Studios. And I am on, I used to be an every week contributor, but because I have spent so much time on the Shakespeare podcast, I've had to scale back to about every other book. So if you just search Close Reads podcast, you will find me and you'll also find whatever book that we're discussing. Right now, we're discussing the Netanyahu's, which I think won the Pulitzer for best fiction three years ago. Um, you can also find me on the Plays the Thing podcast. We just finished The Winter's Tale, myself and Emily Maeta. I know you know the Maeta family very well. And um, we also do something a little bit unique on the Plays the Thing. We do a question and answer episode, but instead of just bringing, you know, audience listener questions, we invite whole families onto the show and we do questions, you know, with kids ranging in age from eight to 18. And it just tends to be more, it's just more enjoyable when you have young people asking, you know, whether Macbeth used an actual sword on stage or whatever questions come up. So the plays, the thing podcast, that's probably the easiest way to find me. If you want to dig a little bit more deeply into Shakespeare. Well, thank you. You can, you can also find Tim on the, the classicalu.com teacher training platform where he has a course featuring live students on how to teach Shakespeare uh, classically. I encourage you to take a look at that. And of course, you can find me on the truenorth.fm podcast network um, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just uh, search for The Christopher Perrin Show. Thanks so much, Tim, for this episode. And I look forward to another conversation about sympathy and fellowship on the next one. So that was part one of my conversation with Dr. Christopher Perrin of Classical Academic Press. Stay tuned for part two. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.